Good morning, and welcome to episode 563 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus, and my Midwest tour is over. I'm back in the studio. For good? I don't know. Depends on the Royals and the Giants, probably. So I was looking at my my route so that ESPN arranged my travel. I had no say really in what flight I took or where those flights took me. And so the route that I ended up taking was New York to Charlotte to Kansas City. And then on the way back, Kansas City to Minneapolis to New York. So I looked at the distance from Kansas City to New York and compared it to the distance from Minneapolis to New York. Yeah. And Kansas City is 1,192 miles from New York. Minneapolis is 1,197 miles from New York. So, so I, five, <laughs> five miles. But that's, that's, by, that's on ground? Uh, yeah. That's, so that's Google Maps driving directions. It's conceivable that it's shorter in the air because the equator and the thing, the longitude, latitude. It's, it's conceivable. It's conceivable, but probably not likely. How, yeah. how, how far is it north to Minneapolis from wherever you said, Kansas? Uh, I will, let's see, it's uh, 437 miles. If, <laughs> if StatCast had been tracking me, I don't think my route efficiency would have been very high on that trip. Did you did you have that thought in the air or did you have it just <laughs> no, now? I had it just now looking nice. at this looking at this map. You took the Norioki route. <laughs> That's right. Speaking of Norioki, uh, Ned Nedio suggested that he might be benched. He might just go with the all Dyson plan in these NL games. Is that is that too much? Is he getting carried away with the Dyson plan? Uh, uh, I haven't gamed this out, but it's harder to use Dyson in the NL, right? For some reason. Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, Andy Andy tweeted that Ned Yost acknowledged the possibility that Dyson Ayo- might start. Right. Aoki has more value off the bench than exactly, Dyson as than a Dyson pinch hitter. Does, yeah. I would say that um, I would rather have Aoki in the field for six innings than Dyson. Generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dyson, you know, he's a very he's a very poor hitter. However, you might make up for it because they don't have another left-handed bat at all. As I I I joked in the preview that they don't have any left-handed bats off the bench except for Gerard Dyson, which is to say they don't have any left-handed bats off the bench. Mm-hmm. And um, so Aoki will. By the way, uh, I like that we're sticking to our bold stance of mispronouncing his last name consistently and together. To the, to the death. <laughs> Nothing about how I've pronounced his name over the last few weeks has been consistent, I don't think. Uh, uh, I plan to drive <laughs> this Chevrolet right over the cliff. Again. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, uh, anyway, um, the, I, Aoki is a, is a good... Is a good well, I, I mean, he, he has no platoon split. So I guess in that sense, it's not necessarily like super-duper ideal. But they just don't have any left-handed pinch hitter, and they're going to need one. I mean, there's like virtually no chance that at some point Sergio Romo isn't going to be in there in a close game, uh, you know, or Casilla, uh, or Machi, and any one of those. I would love to have uh, Aoki off the bench. So pr- maybe pinch hitting for Dyson. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, it... Uh, it, you're not telling me the decision has been made, but you're telling me that Yost is considering it, and this seems like exactly the sort of decision that you should be considering. Yeah, sure. No harm I in considering hope, it. I hope that he doesn't make his decision uh, in a 90-second span while people are listening to him mutter incomprehensibly about <laughs> pronunciation of two-hitters' <laughs> name. Like, I hope he puts more into it than we are, and therefore I will defer to him. I'm sure he will. He's the new Ned Yost. I have the utmost confidence in him. I do, too. Yeah. Uh, There was one other comment made today, non-playoff related, that I just wanted to mention quickly. Did you see what Pat Gillick said? No. So Pat Gillick, CEO of the Phillies, former GM, of course, successful GM pretty much everywhere he went and was sort of the architect of the Phillies teams that won the World Series. Maybe the greatest GM. Could be, yeah. Could be, in the conversation. Yes, and some have suggested that he 
well, he he did build the the Phillies World Series teams, and then the the teams that he left behind maybe have been sort of run into the ground since then. Anyway, he is now back as the CEO, and he said that the Phillies are not close to contention, which is not really something that we've heard from anyone with the Phillies lately. He said, I wouldn't think 2015 or 2016, I don't think is in the cards. I think somewhere around 2017 or 2018. So they are in, on the, the Astros World Series plan now. So mm. this is this is interesting. I wonder if that is refreshing to Phillies fans after years of Ruben Amaro insisting that the old Phillies are suddenly going to start hitting like young Phillies again and they just need Ryan Howard to bounce back and they'll be fine? Or is it even more demoralizing because, <laughs> because now is. you're ruling out the next two years without really having started the rebuilding plan exactly? It's, so a you... difficult, it's a difficult truth. It is for the best that somebody said it. However, for a Phillies fan who was able to maintain even some small bit of delusion uh, or you know cognitive dissonance uh, about the fact that they have wasted many opportunities to uh, to get stronger in the long term, right. uh, this just makes it more egregious or more obvious that they have wasted those opportunities that they have frittered away these chances so i would i would say that it would be a uh, you know an unwelcome truth that's for the best yeah and it's not really something that you hear team executives say that explicitly (laughs) all that often really just ruling out the next couple of years and i wonder what that means for amaro because at least judging by his public comments he hasn't seemed to share that sentiment or he judging by his his actions at various trade deadlines or inaction at various trade de- trade deadlines it didn't seem to be how he felt about the team so i wonder i, I don't know I, I guess if he were on a wobbly chair he probably would have been tipped out of it already so but that'll be interesting to see sure there are also two two coaching vacancies right now would you rather have the vacant hitting coach of the Padres job or the vacant pitching coach of the Rockies job? The Both hitting fairly hitting, thankless tasks. The hitting coach for the Padres, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One is that... First of all, you've got great 95-plus mile-per-hour hitters on your team already. So that's <laughs> the foundation to build on. Well, Petco doesn't... At least, I, I didn't look at what this year did, but after 2013... After 2013, now my years are all mixed up. It's been a long time since the season ended. Yeah, this is uh, 2014. It is 2014. Uh, Petco doesn't play as 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 difficult as as tough anymore, right? Uh, they moved some of the fences in, and mm-hmm. the the results were uh, promising for offense. And so you kind of get to come in and look heroic for doing nothing, uh, and the job isn't quite so difficult either. But also, there's something. I feel like there's something more destructive about uh, making pitchers fail than there will be for making hitters fail. For when you're making hitters fail, it's like say it's 80% of the offensive environment. Well, they're going to put up 80% of the typical offensive stats, but it's still basically the same value because your opponents are too. Whereas I feel like if it, you have a, a 80% of the the pitching environment. So 120% of the offensive environment or whatever. If you have 80% of the pitching environment, you're liable to get like 60% of the pitching performance because guys are getting hurt. They're getting demoralized. They're getting, uh, you know, they're, they don't know what to do with their repertoires. There's, the whole thing is just dispiriting and destructive. That's not actually true, I, I, don't, I don't think, about the Rockies on like a large scale. Mm-hmm. But I, I would certainly feel that way, and I would be... Uh, paranoid that even if it weren't necessarily true on a large scale, I would be paranoid that it was true on every single small scale. So uh, it would not take me a moment's time. And and plus, Denver is a fine city. San Diego is a great city. It is a <laughs> that's true. Can't plus go wrong. City. It is a top top three destination. Top four at least destination. If I uh, were weighing major league jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and both picturesque ballparks at least maybe not 
maybe not friendly to your hitters or your pitchers respectively, but but nice looking stadiums. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you've got the the bounce back effect working for you either way. The Rockies had the worst ERA in baseball, and the Padres had the worst run scoring in baseball, and probably they won't repeat that feat. So you've got that going for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to do some emails today because there hasn't been baseball since we last spoke. So we have accumulated some questions. We will Whoa. do our, our play the index pa- segment. Yes. The, the Padres were better at, they out hit, uh, their 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 uh, home home batting stats were better than their road batting stats this year, huh. which I, I that was not true in 2013. I'm gonna no, has not typically been true. It was very not true in 2012. So uh, you know that doesn't prove anything. But uh, my guess oh it's very not true in 2011. Uh, so yeah, that to me that's a no brainer. Mm-hmm. You're gonna. This guy's gonna look so smart. <laughs> somebody's gonna hit. Somebody's gonna hit like 23 homers with like a 904 OPS, and uh, the batting coach is gonna get right in MVP votes. Mm-hmm. Cameron Maben, comeback player of the year. Good one. Calling it now. You missed your chance. We've already called it. Now. <laughs> That's true. Uh, okay. Well, all right. This question is travel themed, so I will stick with this question. It comes from Ken who says, I'm curious if any research has been done with regards to the different amount of travel each team faces, particularly with Northeastern teams versus more isolated Western teams like Seattle. How much of an advantage do teams on the East Coast really have in terms of less wear and tear and being a selling point for players? The latter may also be more of a factor in baseball, considering they can spend winters anywhere. Has anyone perhaps looked into guys who played in multiple cities in their careers and found lower production levels in seasons where they had to deal with extra mileage. So there have been some people who've looked into this, at least have looked into the travel distances, and they are significant, very significant. There was a, there have been some some recent posts, but there was one study that Dave Allen did at Fangraphs a few years ago where he looked at this like over a seven-year period and he averaged the, the travel distances per year. And as you would expect, the centrally located teams travel less. The, the least traveled team over the period that he looked at it, and probably still today, was the Brewers, followed by the Reds, and then the Chicago teams, and St. Louis, and Cleveland. So... Basically, you know, who the most, you know who the most traveled team is? I do, but, no, you but you're probably making a joke. I am. It's the Royals because they fly through Minneapolis. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Trip. Yeah, you know. They do it in between home series even. Just <laughs> after a three-game set at home, fly at Minneapolis, fly back, play another three-game set at home. It's brutal. Brutal schedule. You, you joke, but on my, on my flight uh, were John Cruck and Carl Ravitch also going to Minneapolis, and I assume that they were going to San Francisco huh. to cover the rest of the series, and yet they were also routed through Minneapolis. Maybe, I don't know, maybe ESPN has some sort of special attachment, travel attachment. Minneapolis is the travel hub for all ESPN employees. Huh. I don't know how to explain it, but that doesn't, just doesn't seem like that would be an efficient route either. I've, uh, I have also flown for ESPN, and it has always been the most efficient route you could imagine. So... Hmm. I've never flown through Minneapolis. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's it's different when you're a, a full-time ESPN person. They give the they give the the contributors the the most direct routes. I'm giving you the Hunter Strickland stare down right now. <laughs> uh, okay, so Ken, uh, so that is the the answer there. And then the the West Coast teams are the ones that travel the most. So the Mariners traveled the most, followed by the A's followed by the Angels and the Giants and the Padres, the ones that you would expect. And it's a big difference. It's actually, on average, it was like double the travel miles for the Mariners relative to the Brewers, which is a lot. And there have been some studies about this. I've seen some, I think there were some done last year or earlier this year about teams that traveled for the NCAA tournament, the March Madness, I think, 
that was done and there was some sort of effect found. Um, I know there was uh, an NBA paper done and there was also a, a baseball paper in 2008, there was an article in the Times about it. Uh, someone, a researcher, did some some research. Dr. W. Christopher Winter, the director of the Sleep Medicine Center at Martha Jefferson Hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he got a grant from Major League Baseball to see how well teams played when they had jet lag. And he presented those results and he looked over uh, over 10-year period and he counted the the teams as uh, sort of acclimated to the time zone where their home city is. And then he looked to see how many time zones difference there were for each team. And he found what seems to be a fairly substantial effect for teams that were three time zones away from their home time zone, playing teams that were in their their home time zone. So I I guess a, a difference of three time zones from the the natural time zone of the players of the respective teams. And he found that there was a difference, but it was not a huge sample. He said over that 10 year period, there were 5,046 games in which one team had to travel through one or more time zones the day before playing teams, playing opponents who had to travel through three time zones had a 97 and 64 record, a healthy 602 winning percentage. And, there was uh, some other stuff. There were uh, he looked separately at games like uh, a loss to Seattle on Monday when the away team was more synchronized to the time zone. Although there were not enough games in the ten-year period to draw a statistically significant conclusion, visiting teams that played an opponent that had traveled through three time zones had a 5.56 winning percentage, and uh, that that's sort of like having home field advantage or a little larger than having home field advantage. So. Maybe, maybe there's something to it. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I'm convinced by the numbers, but it's not shocking if there were something to it. I know that teams have studied. There was some news this this year about some team. I think maybe the Red Sox had set up a sleep room to make sure that their players were sleeping a lot, which is something that Russell Carlton has written about in the past at BP. And teams have studied their their players' circadian rhythms to see whether some players are are morning people or night people naturally, and maybe that affects decisions about who sits or starts in day games or something. I don't I don't know how exactly that information is applied, but I know that teams have looked at it. So there might be something to it, and I have no idea whether that has ever affected a player's signing decision. And I don't know of any studies of players who have played in multiple cities in their careers and comparing their production. But uh, that is all that I know about teams traveling. I, um, it sounds like the travel itself, the distance that you travel itself, uh, I don't know how to put this, but it's not the cumulative miles don't seem like the issue. The being out of sync from certain trips Mm-hmm. is what what sounds like is the issue. And so I don't I don't know how much of the difference between what the Padres do and what say the Yankees do is about the time zones and the cross country stuff. I, I I mean I I I don't know how much isn't. It might be that that's the big deal and it might be a huge deal. But it also seems to me that the Padres lose a substantial amount or gain a substantial amount of of travel uh, just because their division itself is more spaced out, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, they have to, you know, they have to go to Colorado and to Arizona and to San Francisco, uh, which are all sort of like, you know, like San Francisco's 450 miles away. The others are probably a thousand ish. And, um, maybe the Yankees for instance are a little closer cause those teams are a little bit blocked together on the Eastern seaboard. And so you wouldn't think that going to Arizona or Colorado would factor, would be a factor in this. Right, because it's it's only you know it's a time zone. It's not a big deal. I don't know if the Mariners going to because same thing with the Mariners, Houston, and, and Texas. Right, those are fourteen hundred miles or something like that. But I don't know if fourteen hundred miles flips the switch that makes it annoying. If it does, that would be super annoying. If if every trip within your division was like that, it would be annoying. But it sounds like maybe those aren't enough to matter. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, good question. Someone will do it. Russell's probably done it. Hang on, let me check my email. (laughs) 
he's not that quick. He it takes him part of a day usually. Uh-huh. I should also mention that if you want to play around some more with this information, there is a pretty cool tool at Baseball Savant, baseballsavant.com, called the Interactive Team Schedule Map, where you can look at the distance traveled by each team and the the routes taken by each team in each year since 2009. So if you want to look into this a little more, that's a a handy little app that is created for you. Okay, uh, this question comes from Jeremy. Now, I know the old saying, bat your best hitter sixth and he'll keep you in the mix. Mm -hmm. Asterisk. With one (laughs) But Ned Yost takes this too far. Why does Alex Gordon, far and away the Royals' best hitter by OPS+, plus, bat sixth? And why does no one talk about this? I take issue with the second part of the question. People it is, have talked about it. I, I mentioned somewhere in this. I was all prepped to, to rip, uh, when I was writing one of my series previews, probably the first one, I was all prepped to rip into Ned Yost for his ridiculously poorly optimized lineup. But then you look at it and... Gordon doesn't make sense, but the rest of it pretty much does. It's it's pretty close. So if you believe Escobar and Aoki, Aoki, I just said it right, Aoki. If you believe Escobar and Aoki are you know who they were this year, uh, it's like a little bit, just a little bit out of order at the top. Uh, but you know he does have the right guys at the bottom, and he does have basically the right guys more or less. Yeah, uh, Escobar at the top is maybe questionable. I mean, I know he's hit very well there since that switch, but uh-huh. it historically has not really been yeah. your prototypical leadoff hitter, even though Yost has often used him in that spot. Yeah. Historically, you can make a much better case than this year, and one should use historical instead of just this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm giving, I'm probably being a little generous to Ned Yost, but it's not a total disaster wreck of a lineup, except for Gordon, which is the the weirdest thing. And, and there doesn't seem to be I mean, it, he wants to keep. Uh, he's got a nice little lefty-righty thing going, mm-hmm. which uh, is keen for him. Uh, but there's no reason that it couldn't be Gordon second and Aoki uh, sixth, or you know, with Posmer hitting a little bit. I, I guess Yost ain't, ain't changing now, as we talked about with Andy. He's he's ridden this thing for 19, 20 straight games. Uh, but of course, uh, a, a different manager would have moved Mustakas up to sixth, Aoki down to ninth, mm-hmm. Gordon up to second, and then we'd all be happy. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm sure he's been asked about it, but I don't know what he said, if so. And quick Googling does not reveal the answer. I don't know. It's a confusing one. I don't know what his optimal spot would be, but probably second or fourth or something. And so he's missing out on some plate appearances and not being in the best position to drive in runs, perhaps. But uh, it's probably not costing the Royals a whole lot. The difference between Gordon in his optimal spot and Gordon batting ninth or something would probably be not much more than a few runs over a season. So Gordon batting sixth instead of fourth or or some other spot that would make everyone happy is probably not a huge, huge detriment, but it it is perplexing. It's would confusing. we be... Would we be making a bigger deal out of this if they had lost in the wild card game and we still thought that Ned Yost was, you know, a tragedy for that franchise? Uh, perhaps, yeah, maybe. Especially if if Gordon had not been up at the at the right time to save the game or something. I'm looking at his career splits just just to see if maybe that would have something to do with it because sometimes managers will get the idea that guys hit better in a certain spot, or maybe even the players will get that idea. But Gordon's OPS, well, and maybe that's not the best way to, to look at this. His his OPS as, as a sixth-place hitter is 720, which is low for him. It's lower than his OPS as a leadoff guy, as a second guy, as a third guy, as a but fifth you, guy, as a sixth you've already, guy. You've uh, already figured out, though, why that but, doesn't work. But yes, he is, he's a sixth guy in a low offense era and was hitting in different places when there was more offense around the league. So that and, and skews it was, somewhat. And when he was better, when he was 27 and he had his best season. Yeah, sure. That too. Maybe he had his best season because he wasn't hitting sixth. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't hitting sixth because he had his best season. <laughs> 
I think that which one, do you think, which one do you think is more likely? <laughs> which one do you think is more likely? I don't know. I can't prove either, so I'm not taking a position. Fair enough. Uh, okay, this question comes from Matt from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, guys. I love the show and wait, for, wait up every evening for it to be on the site. That must be problematic when it doesn't go up in the evening. I wonder what happened the last couple of days. Should we, do you think, Ben, that we should have some sort of, like, a second... Alert system. Yeah, like a, like a podcast Twitter account that only, uh, only tweets if we're not recording at night. That's the entire, <laughs> that's its entire existence. And then if you're, if you are, it probably, no more than about 30 people in the world should follow that account, but those 30 people would probably be appreciative, right? And it, I mean, we have to answer the question the next morning anyway, when people have tweeted us, so why not do it? Yeah, all right, Sure. Somebody set that up. Tell us what the password is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, or you could maybe one of those websites that is just a question and then a one-word answer <laughs> <laughs> is effectively wild going up tonight. Yes or no? So Matt in Cambridge says, hypothetically, baseball god, hypothetical baseball god approaches Dayton Moore. He offers to trade Mike Trout to the Royals along with his contract, for opening day in 2015 in exchange for the Angels receiving the Royals' current spot in the World Series. This was sent before the World Series started, I believe. If you were more, would you accept? Trout in 2015 and beyond could make the Royals the best team, but as we regularly see, the regular season and playoffs both require a strong amount of luck. The best team clearly doesn't have close have close to roughly 50-50 shot to win the World Series the way the Royals do. While Trout would make the Royals a better team long-term, would it be greater than an incredibly strong chance at a championship, which is the ultimate goal of any team? Oh. I, I don't think it would. I don't either, but can I talk myself into it? I mean, <laughs> you're... It, pretend it, that the Royals no, here's don't the have thing. this baggage this, as a franchise? No, well, this I actually think that the baggage doesn't hurt you. Uh, I mean, if people saw you do it, it would be like they couldn't do it just because people wouldn't accept it. The hot takes would be scalding. Mm. But let's just assume that you could do this in a way that you know everybody's memory would be wiped and they didn't know that you had uh, that you had made it here. They just thought you lost in the ALDS. So here's the thing: this email ends with, "Would it be greater than an incredibly strong chance at a championship, which is the ultimate goal of any team?" Th- there is a difference between the phrase "ultimate goal" and "only goal," and it is true that the ultimate goal is to win a World Series. There are many goals, though, and one of those goals is to play really exciting baseball uh, throughout six-month seasons, make lots of uh, post-seasons, um, have your fans be interested, have them show up because you're a winning team, that you are an exciting team, uh, that you are the sort of team people want to root for. And I think that clearly the Royals' World Series likelihood over the next decade, including right now, this year, goes down if they made this trade. However, the benefits to them as a franchise, uh, I think, probably outweigh a World Series. Uh, or are, uh, at least it's, it's within the realm of possibilities that they outweigh a World Series. What does a World Series do to the Royals as a franchise if they lose you know, 84 games next year and... Uh, which, you know, probably, to be honest, probably Pakoda will say that they will. Like, my mm-hmm. guess is Pakoda sure. will have them right around 80 wins. Uh, my guess is that they uh, won't, you know, they don't have, uh, I don't know, it's, a, it's not a bad core. It's not a guaranteed core. It's not the Nationals after 2012, for mm-hmm. instance. And... Um, they, so what, so imagine a situation where this is their Rockies in 2007 season Mm -hmm. and it's great. It's fun. Everybody's charged and then they lose the next five years. What, then how much will we look back and go, Oh, this changed the franchise in any meaningful way. It won't, it would have added $60 million in revenue and it would have ended. I mean, certainly getting to the postseason was significant. I would not have made the trade if I were the Royals and it was the last day of the season, and say, um, you know, say some other team offered the equivalent of Trout for the postseason spot. I would not have done that. I think mm. making the playoffs was 
exceptionally important to the franchise, to everybody who follows them, to everybody who's probably under the age of 40 or 30, 38 and has been rooting for the Royals for 30 years. Irreplaceable. I At think this point... Getting this I, far, though, I think the the pain of losing or not even competing at this point would be perhaps just as bad because you've got this storybook season that is all set up for the Hollywood ending and then you're just walking away and taking well, ben, Mike Trout. Well, they they have a 50-50 chance of losing this World Series as it is. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not an existential crisis or an existential threat to them if they lose the World Series as it is. I mean, that's you don't always win the World Series. Most teams don't win the World Series many teams don't even win the World Series over 30 years. The fact that the Royals have not won a World Series in 29 years is not newsworthy. It's not even remotely newsworthy. There's tons of teams that have not won a World Series in the last 29 years. Like, probably more than half the league, although I haven't checked, haven't won the World Series in more than 29 years. That's not a very long drought. Not making the playoffs was the long drought. They made the playoffs. It's great. A World Series would be great, too. I just don't know that it shakes the franchise in a way that having Trout for the next six years and having say, four or five playoff runs in that time would. It just creates a completely different... They're the Rays at that point. And um, I don't know, maybe that's a bad example because 400 people went to see the Rays this year. But uh, to me, that might be a bigger deal in retrospect. I I could imagine, particularly given the fact that they have less than a 50% chance of winning the World Series right now um, and had less than a 50%... Well, maybe, or maybe didn't. But had you know a fifty percent chance of losing it anyway, uh, so nothing was guaranteed. Um, I think that I could. I think that right now it's stupid to say yes. I think five years from now, if we look back at the Royals, and I don't even know what's going to happen in the next five years. I'm just saying that with the distance of time, we might look back and go, "No, yeah, the answer was they should." Hmm. Tough sell. Yeah, if you could somehow divorce it from the public, if the if. If the public didn't know about the arrangement, much easier. Yes, if you could, if you could do it clandestinely, so that the Royals would just uh, bow out of the playoffs somehow in a non-suspicious manner, and then Mike Trout suddenly appeared on the roster next year, and no one questioned it, then I think it would be it would be a much easier sell. I don't think there's any way that you could conceivably talk any Royals fan into accepting it at this point. Mm-hmm. All right, play index. Sure. Um, so I, it feels like we've seen a lot of great games in this postseason. We've talked about how we've seen a lot of great games in this postseason. Mm-hmm. So I just got to wondering what the best postseason game was, and um, I did this the way I often do. I there is a school of thought that a crazy win probability graph makes for a great game, and it usually does. I have a different school of thought, which is that, uh, or I come from a different school of thought, which is that persistent interest and persistent excitement beats wild swings. And so while a seven-run inning to erase a six-run lead is pretty awesome, no doubt about it. Great game. I will take it. I will uh, take that every single day, no doubt about it. However, I kind of prefer a game that has, uh, you know, it's close the entire time. There's two runners on in every inning. You're terrified with every pitch. You're uh, optimistic with every pitch. I like a game that has a high leverage index. So leverage index, if anybody's not aware, uh, is a, basically a way of measuring um, how how likely and by how much the, the next play uh, will swing the probability of a team winning. Basically, if, um, if uh, I don't know, Ben, how do you explain average leverage index? How important each moment is or how important it feels, what the what the chances are that it will determine the outcome of the game, that the outcome of the game will be determined at any particular moment? Yeah, it's basically a way of measuring uh, by how much the win probability is capable of changing in the right. next in the next uh, batter, um, more or less in kind of plain English a little bit. So uh, who was this a tango invention? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So Baseball Reference uh, tracks average leverage index. Uh, well, it tracks the leverage index for every situation, and then average leverage index is the leverage for the you know entire for a player. His average leverage index is uh, what the leverage was through his entire uh, pitching stint. 
for a team. It's what it was for the entire game. Um, and so if you do a game search um, by team, uh, you can see what their pitching staff's average leverage index was for the entire game. And so if you limit it to postseason, uh, all postseason games, and you run it for each team's pitching, and then you uh, use VLOOKUP to uh, add them together, the two pitching teams uh, leveraged together, you have a summed average leverage index for the entire game. Mm -hmm. And so I did this to see what the best postseason game ever was by this method. And so there's different ways that you could quibble about what the best is. For instance, is an, an extra inning game has more chances to accrue leverage. So is it automatically going to be an extra inning game? Maybe it is, or maybe to, uh, maybe not, I don't know. Maybe that's an unfair advantage. But I will just tell you a few of the answers. So the answer, the number one, and Ben, you might have to help me remember some of these games. Some of them you won't. Yeah. Um, but it's it's possible that I'll say a game and it'll be a super famous game that everybody remembers and I'll be blanking on it. So tell me if that's the game. All right. So number one is actually game two of the ALCS, the Yankees and the Angels, and uh, in 2009. Uh -huh. uh, it went 13 innings. It was a 4-3 to three finish. And so let's look that game up. Yeah. My, my recall of... Individual playoff games is not strong, or at least not if you just tell me the the series and the game number. I might Mine remember either. when I look at the actual game. So, uh, so let's see. This was this was oh, AJ this Burnett a, versus Joe Saunders. This was, I remember this game. This was I remember this game. This was yeah. Uh, this was the game that um, Brian Fuentes basically. And basically, his Angels career ended. I mean, uh -huh. nobody ever trusted him again. He came into the 11th inning. This is the, my favorite thing in the world is when it goes extra innings and a team scores in the top of the, hat, the inning and mm -hmm. then the other team scores exactly the same amount. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Angels scored in the 11th. Uh, it was tied 2-2. Angels scored in the 11th. Um, and uh, then Brian Fuentes left the ball up to Alex Rodriguez, who went opposite field for a game-tying home run, and they kept on going until the 13th when the uh, Angels had Irvin Santana in the game, and the Yankees went single, sacrifice, intentional walk, and Melky Cabrera reached on a walk-off error, which, <laughs> as you know, is my favorite thing, the walk-off error. <laughs> right. Uh, that was A-Rod's clutch postseason. That was the year that he... He broke the narrative. Dominated the Twins in the division series, and then, yeah, and then slumped in the World Series again, right? Um, but, yeah, and Rivera pitched two and a third scoreless in this game. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, it looks like uh, one, two, three, four, five, six of the first nine innings ended tied. And then, of course, three extra innings ended tied. Uh, tied. So good game. A lot of base runners. That always helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good game. Uh, wouldn't have guessed that it was the best postseason game of all time. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, A-Rod, yeah, A-Rod hit pretty well in the World Series that year, too. Yeah, and and I will I will acknowledge that it is not the best postseason game of all time because there is, you do have to have the impact moment that sticks with you and that all of your memories of the game congeal around. So uh, this might have been the best experience for five hours and ten minutes that you could have. But because it didn't have the, you know, eternal highlight moment, uh, it fades with time. And but of course, people have also extended the concept of leverage index to championship leverage oh, index, okay. which is another I, way to look I, at it. So yeah, you can then see. I'm, uh, I'm on it, Ben. Ah, you are. OK. So uh, best. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, that's an NLDS game. So the best World Series game ever, by this measure, uh, is the 2000 World Series, the Yankees and the Mets, uh, and it was game one, which uh, the Yankees won 4-3 in 12 innings. So that probably did feel like a really good game, too, because that was, I mean, to you, because you were in New York. 
mm-hmm. and uh, you guys think you're so special. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's see. Uh, the oh, this is a great. Here's a, always a good game, in my opinion, when the highest win probability change is an out. So <laughs> the highest win probability change was Paul O'Neill grounding into a double play in the 10th <laughs> inning. Uh-huh. Uh, because at the time, it was obviously tied, bottom of the inning, bases loaded, uh, one out, and uh, he ended the inning. They intentionally walked Posada to get to O'Neill, and he grounded into the double play against Glendon Rush. So, let's see, is there anybody? Uh, Armando Benitez blew the save. That doesn't help. <laughs> right, that happened a lot. David Justice with a two-run double. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tied at zero through the fifth. Yankees jump ahead 2 nothing. Mets immediately come back. No shutdown inning. Go ahead 3-2. Oh, right. Jose Vizcaino drove in Tino Martinez for the winning run. I remember that. Uh, Chuck Knobloch, bottom of the ninth, tied it up. Off Benitez. Mm-hmm. So, good game, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was also extra innings. The best nine-inning game? Uh, was the A's, uh, sorry, the Angels and the Red Sox in 2007. I remember this game. We freaked out in the office at this game. This was the game where uh, in the ninth inning, the Red Sox put two guys on, and the Angels went to Jared Weaver, and Mm -hmm. he came in to face David Ortiz, and the first pitch, (laughs) David Ortiz hit a massive home run. Right. uh, Walk off, and uh, pretty much felt like uh, for years it felt like the angels could never beat the red Sox, and that was pretty much the moment that i think everybody had in mind it was just that it just felt like so inevitable that ortiz was going to hit the home run he did hit the home run and you just thought they're they're a better team that's what it Mm -hmm. felt like Mm -hmm. uh best game seven i'll go to best game seven I have two more. Uh, best game sevens. Uh, it probably wasn't even a seven-game series, so I'm going to skip that because it was 1924. The mm-hmm. uh, best game seven, you have to go all well. You have to go down to number 29, which was the Jack Morris game. Oh. Well, yeah, that was that was going to be my initial guess if you had asked me to pick a game. Mm-hmm. So that's the best, probably the highest. If you go by championship leverage index, that would be the highest. That would be the greatest game of all time as regards a World Series championship. Unless you count this 1924 game. Game, which, seven, game 7 of 1924 was the one that the newsreel footage just, oh, really? just came out of. The, the Walter Johnson game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so that's a good one. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the best game of this se- postseason, do you, wanna, do you have a guess? Well... This method favors long games, right? And it favors... So is the, is it just the 18-inning game? It is. Uh-huh. It, it favors them, but not automatically. It, mm-hmm. There's actually... If you're not getting base runners in extra innings, it starts actually lowering the leverage index. Because really, if you're, if it's a, even if it's a, the 15th inning, or the 9th, it's the same thing, even if it's the 15th inning and you have two outs and nobody on, like there's very, very, very little chance that the state of the game is going to change. And so uh, what actually happens in a game like that is the leverage index starts to shrink. But yes, the Giants and the Nationals at 18 inning, the 18 inning game is number 61 all time. And so that's number one for this year. But there have been a, a couple of others that have been high. The uh, first game between the Angels and the Royals, which was I think the Mustakis game. Was Hosmer the next one? Or, I can't remember if it was the Hosmer or the Mustakis game. That was Mustakis. Okay, it was Mustakis. That was that's number eighty-three all time. Um, and the uh, Dodgers Cardinals game two, which I don't remember particularly. Uh, the Dodgers won three to two. I didn't watch that game. That was number ninety-four all time, which is still mm-hmm. very high. Um, so the two thousand fourteen games start punching in here um number 115 was the giants and cardinals game two which was the lance lynn game uh well i the lance lynn game it was the <laughs> trevor rosenthal game uh-huh. it's a great game that was probably i would say that's probably my game in the postseason so far it's number 115 game two yeah game two of the cardinals dodger series that was a good one that was the carpenter home run and the camp home run that yeah was a good one didn't see it. Didn't we? Didn't talk about it. I don't know anything yeah. about it. 
Okay. All right. Uh, all right. I think that's it. That's what I got. Cool. Okay. So subscribe to the Play Index if you want to do your own research on the best playoff games using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right. Uh, we'll take one more. This is, of course, from another listener named Matt. A different Matt. This is Matt in Portland. He is responding to the our, our discussion of Mike Matheny's Michael Waka move and and more so than the move, the justification of the move as as not using your closer in a tie game on the road. Matt says, so my initial thinking was along the lines of you two on your podcast. If I were the GM, I think that would be it for Matheny. The fact that holding your closer until you have a lead is common practice shouldn't matter and should be changed. But thinking about this more, here's why it's not a fireable offense for the manager in practice. A well-run team has clear and consistent lines of communication between the GM and manager. And let's assume St. Louis has that. So the GM and the manager have clearly discussed this before. You have to think that there are strategy meetings where they talk about how to deploy personnel in specific situations. So any decisions like that should already have a plan and shouldn't be a surprise. The team already knows what they're going to do. It's not like the manager is like, well, dang, what the heck do we do now? If the GM and the manager disagreed about how to approach this, they would have worked it out by now. So by this theory, the GM is also on board with the strategy that was deployed, which means that now we are at, we are at it's a fireable offense for the GM, not the manager. I don't know that I agree with the premise. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, uh, certainly there are differing levels of GM involvement in actual in-game moves and tactics. It's kind of kind of a third rail or at least in certain places the the manager's domain is in game moves and lineups and deciding which pitchers to put in and often if the gm wants to do something about that he has to trade the guy or get rid of the guy that he doesn't want the gm to use now that's not really the best way to run your team probably ideally you would have them both be on the same page and you would have a manager, I, you could say that it, that the fault lies in the hiring of the manager, I suppose, if you think that this is a very important thing, a very important component of the manager's job, then the GM should select a manager who is inclined to make the, the correct decision here. And so, therefore, you could hold the GM responsible for not prioritizing tactics when hiring a G, uh, hiring a manager i guess you could you could put it that way but let's be honest ben all 30 gms 25 gms in the game right now think you should be using your closer in a tie game on the road right yes and 29ish managers don't do it right and so i mean i don't know if all these gms have had the conversation and they just, you know, agree that it's the manager's call, or if you don't have the conversation over every single thing. Uh, but look, I, I think I feel pretty confident saying that Andrew Freeman was pro closer in the ninth, or is generally pro closer in the ninth, and that Joe Madden didn't do it anyway. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know what gets in the way of that, but no, I mean, it's the look, it, you pick your fights. You, you, want your, you have to give your manager at the very least the illusion of autonomy that he craves for self-respect uh-huh. and so that he'll continue to try hard for you uh, on behalf of you. You have to choose your fights. And my guess is that GMs figure, eh, I'll throw a memo out there. Hopefully <laughs> he'll read it. Um, hopefully it will get his brain going. But I doubt anybody's had the, um, you know, the, the knockdown uh, war over this issue. I think mm-hmm. that GMs probably accepted, and at the end of the day, it's their lineup. Yeah, and maybe it's something that will change. It's hard to say how many. I mean, I feel like you should be able to find someone who can combine the leadership skills of a Mike Matheny or some other manager who players like and who players play hard for someone who combines that with 
with willingness to use your closer in tie games on the road as as a proxy for sort of a certain sort of tactical approach to the game. But that's probably a difficult thing to do. There aren't there aren't a lot of I guess there's not a lot of overlap between people who played the game, which at this point at least is a prerequisite for being a major league manager and people who would manage completely differently from the way their own managers manage their teams during their careers. I, I guess it's probably hard to find that person. I mean, Gabe Kapler is such a person, I suppose, based on his his comments and, and his own reaction to that move. But I don't know how many Gabe Kaplers there are out there. And maybe that's a, a tall order. I would think that... You would you'd want to be on the same page. You'd want your manager to make the moves that you would make were you in the dugout as a GM. But uh, it's it's easier said than done, I guess. I mean, when it when it costs you an elimination game, then it must be pretty tough to swallow. Or when it potentially costs you an elimination game. But yeah, I guess it's just sort of a pill that you have to have to swallow because that's the state of managing yeah i don't even particularly i i don't even get that riled up about matheny i I think it's silly and and kind of annoying but i don't even get that riled up when matheny does it in the regular season or when Mm -hmm. any manager does in the regular season right i assume that at least 15 of the managers out there also know that they should be doing it and that this is something that in the same way that we talked about with the GM and the manager, this is something that they do because you want to keep your closer happy and it's not worth the long-term strife. Uh, with Matheny, the issue is that he did it in the postseason, and I don't know that I expect Mosellock to go over every scenario with Matheny that's going to be different in the postseason and get a you know vow that he's not going to do it. Right. Yeah, I mean, these manager managerial interviews, from what is reported, tend to be very long and over the course of multiple days and include quizzes on tactics, or at least certain teams seem to administer such quizzes. And that would be one of the things that you would include, perhaps, uh, if you were expecting to be a playoff team. You might want to know whether your manager would manage any differently in the postseason, but... Yeah, it's it, it's just you have to give your manager some sort of leash unless you want to just completely make him a middleman with no decision-making powers, which who knows, perhaps one day some team will try that, but no one has tried it yet. So if you if you were to fire one man- general manager for this, you would pretty much have to fire all of them. Yep. Okay. So that is it for this show and for this week. We hope that you will send us some emails for next week at podcast at baseballprospectus.com, that you will join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild for all your baseball discussion needs over the weekend. We would love it if you rated and reviewed and subscribed to the podcast. Helps us attract new listeners. And we hope that you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday.